Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, very happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we'll consider some of the issues that might come up, maybe that should come up, when we consider the relationship between art and architecture, ecology, and the wisdom traditions. Now, these reflections relate to the dialogue with Sarah Breen Lovett from our last episode, but they just bear on the whole of our existence. We live in dwellings, so we inherently deal with architecture, whether we design our homes or not. But we relate with architecture all the time, the built environment. We are creative beings, so we're in relationship to the arts all the time, and we are creators of a world together. And that world is a living world, so we are inherently ecological beings, but we're quite eco-illogical in our living. Eco-illiterate, we could say, but I don't like the term eco-literacy because it makes it seem like nature really is a text, and somehow the text is primary. Of course, we can have a a view of the interwovenness of word and world, and I think that's very helpful and beautiful, but that means that the birds are singing a kind of text as well, and the trees are proclaiming the teachings of all the wisdom traditions, and the oceans are proclaiming them, and so on and so on. And so the relationship between really all those things is essential to the wisdom traditions, because those traditions teach us how to live, and that is in this world, and in the kinds of activities that we engage in. And it may seem strange to ask it, but one way to put the most important question for humanity right now is, can we learn to inhabit reality? Now that's a, I don't know if, if that question comes across as important as it is. The implication there in that question is that we currently inhabit delusion. That's what the wisdom traditions of the world, including many indigenous traditions, try to make rather clear to all of us living in or infected by the dominant culture. And part of that inhabiting delusion would be the built environment, and it would also be our lack of real intimacy with and insight into the mind of ecology and the ecology of mind. We could say that our divergence from reality appears in many ways, in many forms, and one of the most crazy-making forms comes to us in the economic and political realm. This one, really, it, it drives me crazy. I don't know if it drives you crazy, but we get told all the time by business and political leaders, and we have to put that word in quotes, we get told by CEOs and politicians that our need for a thriving and just world, 
isn't realistic. And we have to put that word, realistic, in quotes, because that's a crisis situation. When it comes to justice and ecological health, on which our personal and social cultural well-being depends, these supposed leaders, these CEOs and politicians and their coterie of followers and whatever you want to call them, they tell us essentially that reality isn't realistic. That's astonishing. When reality itself becomes unrealistic, we face the potential for grave catastrophe, and not to mention general unwellness, which we are all suffering from. And sadly, we have become pretty accustomed to thinking of reality as unrealistic. That's a really shocking thing. Reality is unrealistic. Reality tells us we need clean water, clean air, healthy soil. But our politicians and CEOs effectively tell us that it's not realistic to think we can stop the collapse of our ecologies, stop the pollution of our air and water, and stop the degradation of our soil. Reality tells us we all depend on each other, and that we succeed most profoundly by means of cooperation, collaboration, and mutuality. Reality tells us we can function on the basis of compassion, wisdom, and grace. But we get indoctrinated to see ourselves as atomized individuals who succeed by means of self-centeredness, competition, and even outright aggression. We get indoctrinated to see ourselves as homo economicus. It's a totally delusory being, non-existent. We're supposed to see ourselves as homo economicus instead of seeing ourselves as homo sapiens, a wisdom being, a being of earth. Seeing ourselves as homo economicus is realistic. And our real nature is unrealistic, according to this deluded view that we get forced to participate in and perpetuate. Living in accord with our real nature also means living in accord with our philosophical, spiritual, and religious traditions. But we are taught to see those traditions as unrealistic. We're also indoctrinated to believe it's not realistic to expect real democracy. Certainly not realistic to expect democracy at work. It's not realistic to think we don't need billionaires. It's totally unrealistic to think we should have a just economic and political system. It's not realistic. It's not realistic for everyone to have health care. No, totally unrealistic. It doesn't work. Can't have any other economy but the one we have, because that's unrealistic. Only this one works. And in, even people try to, to show their realism by saying, well, it's the worst system there is other than all the other ones. It's the most absurd 
kind of maneuvering, as if we're desperate to not have to actually live up to our own ideals, desperate to not have to figure that out. We just don't want to figure out how we could live in a realistic way, so we declare anything that the wisdom traditions try to invite us to see as reality, we declare it as unrealistic. A realistic democracy gets limited to voting and protesting and seeing the the government as something other than ourselves. The government is what we refer to in a nation that's supposed to be politically oriented such that the government is of, for, and by the people. That we have a managed democracy, which means that we just have the trappings of it and we're supposed to feel good because we voted, even though it's totally a managed situation. That means effectively there's not even, even a representative democracy. It's just a managed democracy. It's a form of totalitarianism or rule by elites or whatever you might want to think of it as. The reality of democracy invites us into participation, dialogue, and the wonders of mutual illumination, mutual liberation, mutual support, mutual nourishment. However, the vision of a democratic culture and the vision of real liberation for ourselves remains unrealistic. Now, we could go on and on cataloging how reality isn't realistic in our present system of thought. This style of consciousness that characterizes the dominant culture. And all of this might sound a bit philosophical in that pejorative sense of the word that we've been taught to associate with philosophy. The sense of philosophy that our realistic leaders want us to accept as final. And ironically, our leaders preach to us the most insane and unrealistic philosophies while getting us to think of real philosophy, real love wisdom, as unrealistic, abstract, and idealistic. But love wisdom will win in the end, or we'll all lose. And even our scientists have begun to take seriously things that we find in the wisdom traditions. And one that is somewhat entertaining to me is something that the philosopher Nietzsche first realized in relation to the theory of evolution. And he related this realization in his book on the joyful science. Now that's a nice unrealistic science, which Nietzsche felt was the only realistic kind we could have if we wanted to thrive. A joyful science. A science, can you imagine a science that really brings us joy? Not entertainment, not distraction. A science of truly joyful scientists. And so that means the scientists would have to become sages. They would have to become people who followed science as a spiritual path and as a path that furthered the conditions of life. That's the only real purpose science can have but it's not currently the only purpose our science has in the dominant culture. Now, Nietzsche had the brilliant idea that we need a scientific revolution that gives us a whole new style of science, and we still need that. 
It would be rooted in joy, and it would help us to create a vitalizing culture and a vitalizing world. And I think scientists hunger for for that, too. I think they would like to see that happen. And some of them, I think, seem to be trying to make a contribution toward that, but they're still too busy acting as if they have discovered things that the wisdom traditions have been teaching us for a long time. So they, they haven't studied philosophy because that would be unrealistic. Science is realistic, and philosophy is unrealistic. And that's what we're supposed to believe, I think. Nevertheless, let's talk Nietzsche here. In The Joyful Science, he proposed that evolution, this is Nietzsche making this analysis, and again the scientists have come to really work on this, but he proposed that evolution offers us no guarantee that beings would evolve to have increasing insight into the nature of reality. And quite the contrary, if delusion, if there's any delusion that has a survival value, then beings could emerge with deeply entrenched ignorance because they would have those delusions because of their survival value. And that seems to be part of the human predicament. Maybe it's the whole human predicament. Maybe that's just the way to talk about the human predicament. I'm not sure. But Nietzsche catalogs some of the ignorance that he thinks evolved into us and and became entrenched, you see. So I, I hope this is clear. The idea that some people might have is that evolution is going to the processes of evolution since it has to do with who's going to survive and so on, that, well, survival would certainly be increased if we had insight into the nature of reality. But in a long and slow and complicated and sometimes messy evolutionary process, that's not necessarily going to be the case. And the only thing that matters is whether or not the organism can survive. This is what Nietzsche was trying to argue. Again, it's a complicated story, isn't it? And all he's saying is there's no guarantee. He's saying that if certain delusions had survival value, for whatever reason, then those delusions could become entrenched in certain kinds of sentient beings. And so here are the ones that he points out. First, you could have the delusion, that is to say that you really see the world this way. That's what he means by a kind of delusion that's entrenched in you. You you actively see the world in such and such a way, even though that's not the nature of reality as far as we can tell. So how do we perceive the world that might be a series of delusions? So the first one, or one of the ones that Nietzsche mentions, is that there are enduring things. That's an example of a kind of delusion that a being could develop through evolutionary processes, that there are enduring things. Another one that he mentions is that there are equal things. Another one he mentions is that there are things at all, substances, bodies, objects. Another one that he mentions is that a thing is what it appears to be. Another delusion he mentions is that our will is free. 
And finally, one that he mentions is that what is good for me is also good in itself. Our science and our wisdom traditions have raised profound objections to these forms of delusion. And we can't really call these beliefs because beliefs usually submit to correction, even if it takes a long time to correct. But what we're talking about here, this, this kind of ignorance, the ignorance expressed in these propositions, it's expressed in sentences, but that doesn't mean that's how we hold them, as sentences, as propositions that we could challenge. Because this kind of ignorance that we're talking about has to do with the way we constitute reality. And there we would have to put reality in quotes because Nietzsche is saying that this isn't real. Have you ever seen an enduring thing? There isn't such a thing. Everything changes. Are there two truly equal things? No, because then how could they be two different things? If they were equal, they'd have to be one thing. Are there things at all? Substances, bodies, objects? doesn't seem to be that way. At least when we review the science and the wisdom traditions, there are these challenges that we find, empirical. These are things that scientists take very seriously and could understand why someone would suggest, well, yeah, there might not be objects. Why? Well, because when you get close enough to an object, what you find is mostly empty space. And then what you find is we don't even know what. We don't know what's what else is there. Some kind of patterning, maybe. But there aren't really objects. From a certain perspective, though, it, it makes sense to think that way. And that's what Nietzsche is saying. You can get by thinking that there are enduring things and that there are objects. And maybe it helps you survive to think about the world that way. doesn't mean it's reality. And we are constituting what we refer to as reality with these kinds of delusions. And we can't just change our mind about the existence of objects because we automatically and unconsciously constitute, that is, make, fabricate our experience as if we are subjects in relationship to pre-existing objects. And we even take the meaning of the word reality to indicate something just like that, how things would be even if there were no humans around. That's sometimes the way we think of reality. But the reality that we're aware of depends on humans in order to be what it is. And that doesn't matter whether the humans are in delusion or not. That will just change the reality, you see. And Nietzsche puts this problem in delightfully Nietzschean terms, we could say. He says that truth emerged very late in human development. And it emerged, relatively speaking, as the weakest form of knowledge human beings had access to. That's a really clever formulation when you think about it. He's saying, you look at the long, long, long line of human evolution, and you will find that knowledge appears, it certainly begins to appear, right, when organisms start to behave like they know things. And they start knowing a world made of objects and made of substances and made of enduring things and so on and so on. And then late in that developmental path, that developmental process, oh, lo and behold, truth appears. 
because we begin to ask the question, well, maybe things aren't the way they appear to me. And then suddenly there's this question, well, what if it isn't what it appears to be? And so here comes this idea, this new idea. It's a very late one. And it's the weakest form of knowledge that human beings had, in part because, of course, we're entrenched in delusion. Right? You could say, in large part. So we'd, we wouldn't know what to do with it yet. And the delusions are deeply embedded in us. Now, in one sense, we could read Nietzsche as having conquest consciousness in mind, in particular. It's as if he's telling us the biography of conquest consciousness. And he thus offers us a diagnosis of our current crisis, which is a crisis of reality and knowledge. We currently can't agree on how to properly know reality. How to properly know what to do. How to organize our societies and coordinate our work, our labor together. How to take care of the world. How to become happy, healthy, and wise. We lack a joyful science. And we seem caught in a science of misery and delusion. Now, the situation, maybe we could say, is like this. We see that it is possible to live without truth and even to appear to thrive on the basis of ignorance. Our perception and our, what we could call, higher faculties, putting that in quotes, and something like reason, analysis, scientific investigation. All that works on the basis of these essential errors. So we're talking about not just the, say, the political circus, where we, clear, we can't agree on reality. Did somebody win in the election or not? And what is an election? We can't even agree on the reality of this. Is this democracy at work? We can't agree whether a virus is real. We can't agree whether or not a vaccine will murder you. So there, there are extraordinary delusions. People think that if we let the wolf population grow, that the wolves will be eating human babies. We just can't seem to figure out reality. But then you might say, oh, come on, that's extreme. And, and Nietzsche and also the wisdom traditions would say, yes, but the people you call scientists... They make science. They produce knowledge on the basis of these same kinds of delusions. It doesn't matter even that their findings often contradict those delusions. It's not like we've metabolized them. Our scientists, too, mostly live in a Newtonian universe in some ways. And that's because Nietzsche is saying, look, it's just how you, it, you fabricate a conscious experience. And so Nietzsche is inviting us to just get really realistic about our ignorance. In accord with many wisdom traditions and the great sages of those traditions, Nietzsche wants to help us see that we have come to incorporate our ignorance. We are ignorance embodied, not merely ignorant as a matter of belief. You know, that's one way. We sometimes think that 
well, somebody's ignorant because they have these backwards beliefs. And Nietzsche is saying, no, we are ignorance embodied. It's deep. Now, our true nature may be wisdom, love, and beauty, but that's all abstraction. When we're just talking about it, sitting around talking about it, that's an abstraction. Wisdom, love, and beauty might be our real nature, the most concrete thing about us. But in practice, we embody ignorance. And we could say that liberation means learning to embody reality. Now we have to come back to that. It's, a, it's, it's central to the fundamental point we're getting at here. But first, let's acknowledge that Nietzsche directly pointed at the conflict we see today. I know we kind of acknowledge that a little. I just, I really want to highlight this. Because Nietzsche said, any time life itself seems to conflict with human knowledge, and then, now we have to put knowledge in quotes, but doesn't that drive you crazy? That's because we're using words and we're not being honest about them. So Nietzsche is saying, look, we've got all this knowledge that's based on delusion. So our knowledge is not enlightenment. You know, like Stephen Pinker's got this ridiculous book, Enlightenment Now. I don't think he's addressing any of this. I, I mean, he's a super bright guy, and yet I think this is a doofus kind of suggestion. I don't understand how we can look at a world falling apart the way it is and think that it's Enlightenment Now. And it may be that book, too, is yet another example. And this is what Nietzsche is saying. If, you, if life itself comes into conflict with what humans think they know, which, which is the opposite, in this case, of enlightenment, but it's endarkenment, you see? If our knowledge is based on delusions and we are embodied ignorance, then that knowledge we shouldn't even call knowledge. We should call it endarkenment. It's not to say the whole thing is wrong. It's a subtle point in some ways, and yet it's so real. And when life comes into conflict with what humans think they know, we will call anyone who sides with life unrealistic. And that includes the wisdom traditions too. So, you know, if you're going to side with Jesus and Jesus conflicts with human knowledge, we're going to call you unrealistic. And you might say, well, you know, come on, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in this resurrection stuff. Yeah, that's not so much the issue. The issue is whether or not you can be born again. The issue is whether or not we should all take care of the poor. The issue is whether or not we should decide that money doesn't rule the nation and the culture, but that we must follow the dictates of wisdom, love, and beauty, and on and on and on. The real teachings there. Because these are teachings about compassion. They tell us that we could operate on the basis of compassion. These are teachings about wisdom that tell us we should not operate on the basis of ignorance. These are teachings about training our mind, training our heart, training our attention, learning the real capacities of our mind. All this is unrealistic. When we side with truth, when we side with reality, when we side with life, when we side with love, when we side with the wisdom traditions we will pretty consistently get denounced by anyone who prefers the ignorance human beings put forward as knowledge. Again, in quotes. 
and this is nuanced because isn't the whole point that we have a, a knowledge crisis, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. And then I, I'm, here I am coming in and saying, well, we have to put knowledge in quotes sometimes. Why? Because we're in this mess, this very mess. And in our time, this also captures the function of what we might refer to as quote-unquote progressives or certain kinds of educated, that's in quotes, thought leaders, that's in quotes. And I know I'm being a little sassy. This is frustrating, isn't it? It's also really sad and urgent. That's the thing that really worries me. That it's, people are suffering on this basis on the basis of these conflicts, this crisis of how to know the world, how to know ourselves, how to coordinate our life together. And so we have these people who are labeled as progressives, who are labeled as educated, who are labeled as thought leaders, and they function as weak mediators of reality and truth. Or you could say they're mediating reality and truth on the one side and human knowledge on the other, kind of working in between the two, And it's like they try to stop the most horrific forms of reality denial, even while they themselves remain mired in ignorance and often produce quote-unquote knowledge that is not in accord with reality. Just to take an example, we could have two claims about reality that seem contradictory or somehow in conflict. Now, this happens because both claims remain largely compatible with the basic errors we embody. So, we are ignorance embodied. You start making claims that can get along with that embodied ignorance, then what you will eventually get is people making contradictory claims. Because if we're ignorance embodied, then contradictions are going to emerge from that eventually. So, so to take a, a, a very challenging example, the phrase, my body, my choice, seems contradictory to what we might read from a picket sign on the other side, a protest sign on the other side. Uh, one that I came across once was this one, as a former fetus, I oppose abortion. So we have two people standing on this, you know, Different sides of the street, one has a sign, my body, my choice, the other one has a sign, as a former fetus, I oppose abortion. And both of these catchphrases reflect confusions that we embody rather than things that we believe. Put in maybe somewhat strange terms, Nietzsche is essentially telling us that evolutionary theory invites us to see that we evolved on the basis of a will to survival, not a will to truth. You think all the beings out there, what are they willing toward? Are they willing toward, I want to know the truth, or are they willing toward, I need to survive? And so what matters is what helps us survive, not what helps us know ultimate reality. 
And recent work, I, I said, you know, the scientists are kind of taking this idea seriously. And one of them is Donald Hoffman. Now, I disagree with him in some fundamental ways, but I can still acknowledge Hoffman for trying to work with these suggestions in a serious way. And I asked him about it. He apparently didn't know about Nietzsche, and I told him maybe you should read Nietzsche, and because he's uh, he's got some, at least when I last uh, read his work and interacted with hi- him and his co-author, they had some kind of simplistic Kantian assumptions in their view, and I don't think they're particularly productive. doesn't matter. It's just important to see that very serious scientists are taking Nietzsche's suggestion into account in trying to think about how to understand consciousness and the nature of reality. And what matters most for us right now in this contemplation is what Nietzsche himself saw as the most important question in relation to all of this. It's a question that stands, even if we make lots of objections to what we've been thinking about so far, his key question here still really matters to us. And it's this. Nietzsche asked, to what extent can truth be incorporated. And I would say that in yet another instance of his prescience and his excellence as a philosophical diagnostician, he was a pretty good soul doctor as far as a diagnostician goes. Maybe he was like the house of philosophy. I don't know. I don't know that he was really grumpy, but he certainly suffered a lot and uh, had some some blind spots because of his suffering. But still, he was a pretty darn good philosophical diagnostician for the dominant culture. And he rightly saw all other questions, maybe, that we could ask as subordinate to this one. So you could ask all kinds of questions about your life, about economy, politics, ecology, art. And Nietzsche says, yes, but still, the most important question for us is to what extent can truth be incorporated. In the midst of all manner of denials of reality that we see, we have come maybe to the most dire need to stop, to pause all our insanity. That means us, we too. Stop pointing the finger and saying, those crazy people over there Just stop, and can we all ask this question? Can truth be embodied? We have embodied so much ignorance that now the consequences of that ignorance have themselves come to take up residence in our bodies. You see? Because we embodied ignorance, we now have plastic and Teflon in our blood. We have lead in our bones, iron and mercury in our brains. So we are embodying our own ignorance a second time. And you know it throws us off too, doesn't it? The endocrine disruptors, the connections that have been made between lead concentrations and crime rates... Woo, it's intense. We have embodied so much ignorance that, effectively speaking, we no longer inhabit reality. 
generally speaking, this is like a culture-wide generalization. The dominant culture doesn't really inhabit reality, and because of its indoctrination of its citizens and the way it has infected so much of the planet, then a lot of us have to reckon with this problem, that we're not really inhabiting reality. Instead, we live in our own world of delusion. You know, sometimes it, it almost is kind of tailored to us, but it's at least a kind of general human world of delusion. And part of that delusory world is that we can keep degrading the conditions of life and extending the conditions of injustice. As if that's not going to cause a problem. As if that conflict with reality could go on. Can we change that? Can truth be inhabited? The great philosopher Thich Nhat Hanh offers a delightful invitation in this regard. He wrote, quote, Our own life is the instrument with which we experiment with truth. That's a lovely line. Our own life. He's saying our own body, our own experience. We experiment and we embody. If we experiment with greater care and attentiveness, a little bit more in attunement with the wisdom traditions, if we experiment in line with their guidance, with care, again, with attentiveness, we can begin to break free from delusion and we could find out what it means to inhabit truth. Asking how we can inhabit truth comes to asking, how can we inhabit interwovenness? That's a grand experiment. How can we inhabit interwovenness? And this grand experiment proposed by the likes of Nietzsche and Thich Nhat Hanh, two fairly distinct philosophers, by the way, you know, this is not picking, say, two Buddhist philosophers. Nietzsche and Thich Nhat Hanh, pretty different in a lot of deeply significant ways. But fair to say that a, a real insightful diagnostician of the Western cultural tradition, the dominant culture and its traditions, and someone fully in accord with much of Asian philosophy, certainly with many streams of Buddhist philosophy, these two people, wow, that they agree on, on this in, in their own ways. This grand experiment that they are inviting us into has become incredibly urgent because we can see that especially for a planet of almost 8 billion humans, perhaps 9 or more before we're done, who knows, we also have to ask this related question. To what extent can we endure at all to what extent can life as we know it endure at all if we fail to better incorporate truth? We keep incorporating and embodying delusion and ignorance, and we're not going to be around much longer. Now, maybe the species won't go extinct, but it's really not going to be pleasant, and we already seem to have put ourselves firmly on the path to some suffering, that we should consider 
unacceptable right now, unconscionable. But it's unrealistic to stop it. That's the conflict we're in. It's unrealistic to stop suffering that we could stop right now. And we're talking on the scale of tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people. We're already seeing it. It's happening right now and it's unrealistic to stop it. So this has nothing to do with absolutes. You know, some absolute, capital T, truth, and now we're going to have a whole postmodern discussion about that. It's just a distraction. We're talking about the question of our skillfulness or unskillfulness in relationship to our whole way of life, which we cannot ever untangle from our way of knowing and being and in general living and loving. Philosophy or love wisdom has to do with knowing better by living better. Living better by knowing better. And then you can intersperse love in there anywhere you want and being in there anywhere you want. So love wisdom has to do with knowing better by also loving better. Loving better by living better. Living better by loving better. Loving better by knowing better. All the combinations of wisdom, love, and beauty. Totally interwoven. Philosophy, love, wisdom, and what what we refer to as spirituality, the wisdom traditions, they teach us the altogether shift, that is like the holistic shift into better ways of knowing and being, living and loving. And that's how they liberate us, into our fullest capacity to cultivate the whole of life onward, to positively, joyfully, evolve our life in our world together. To evolve life, really. To joyfully vitalize the whole world. Science, what we call science, art, and we could include here all human endeavors, architecture, knitting, cooking, playing, all our activity has to ultimately be in service to life, not in service to any typical human agenda. What Gregory Bateson referred to just as conscious human purpose. And philosophy, or love wisdom, it helps us, all of us, take up that fundamental act of service, of care, which amounts to, we could say, a higher purpose. And we don't have to conceive of the notion of a higher purpose or any of these ideas as dogmatically religious, you know. Religion's not bad. Uh, it's part of it. The, the wisdom traditions include the best of our religious traditions. Maybe not, maybe there are certain aspects of our religious traditions that are problematic, but, you know, there is no philosophy. There's no idea, no, no nothing that is free, completely free of spiritual materialism. So anything can get twisted. And when we're talking about higher purpose, we're talking about some kind of common ground vision that all of us, whether you're a theist or an atheist or a non-theist, whatever, all of us can see as really essential to the meaning of life or participating in the meaning of life. And when we speak of embodying it or inhabiting it, 
inhabiting or embodying interwovenness and fluidity because that seems like reality. And thus necessity in the spiritual and ecological sense. And when we talk about embodying or inhabiting that reality, I think we should sense a paradox there. Because everything we know tells us that interwovenness and fluidity is how things are. If we look at our cutting-edge science, and if we look at the wisdom traditions, they tell us precisely this. Everything is interwoven, and practically speaking, in flux. Everything is interwoven and fluid, dynamic. And you know, we are too quick, way too quick, to jump up and say, I understand this, I know that, I know it's all interwoven. And that's because we've just gotten so very clever about our knowledge. Again, that's knowledge in quotes. So we're trapped in these embodied delusions, this embodied ignorance, and yet we can get PhDs and do very complicated mathematics or linguistic analysis or other kinds of calculative instrumental thought or intuitions that we have and, you know, we can have very creative thought and vivid feelings and and then we just fancy that we've understood. Or we go out and we build complicated things, maybe corporations or particle accelerators or rocket ships or fancy buildings, and we think we understand the world. Whatever it is, whatever our basis is, we just really think we understand this fundamental notion. Everything is totally interwoven and dynamically fluid. We think we understand that, but we don't. We don't really understand or wonderstand interwovenness and flux, or else we would not suffer. That's the first thing to ask yourself when you think you understand it. Well, am I totally liberated, perfectly wise, perfectly compassionate, perfectly graceful in my life? If so, then you embody reality, and you do understand interwovenness, and the dynamic fluidity of all things. But if you can at least admit that you are not perfectly wise, if you can at least admit, yes, you know, I have discovered a little bit of suffering in me now and then, a little bit of reactivity, that's where it comes from. The philosophical meaning of suffering includes a sense of pattern such that we could say we get pulled into patterns of suffering that arise from an active misknowing of reality. That automatic embodiment of ignorance or delusion. And part of our misknowing relates to our failure to directly and intimately sense the mutuality of self and world. It leads us to miss the ways we have to become artists of life. The great photographer Henri Carrier-Bresson, reflecting on the nature of art, wrote the following. 
He wrote, quote, Through the act of living, the discovery of oneself is made concurrently with the discovery of the world around us, which can mold us, but which can also be affected by us. As the result of a constant reciprocal process, both these worlds, inner and outer, come to form a single one. And this is the world we must communicate. I think he was a little wishy-washy there at that one spot where he said, which can mold, the world can mold us, but can also be affected by us. But then, it, thankfully, he took it back, so to speak, the wishy-washiness, and he says, no, there's a constant reciprocal process. Even that is, shows delusion, because it's as if there's a constant reciprocal process between two things. And there are these two things, an inner world and an outer world. So he's trying to get at it, but I would say there is some good evidence that he too is trapped in the delusion. We shouldn't expect any more. It's not like Henri Cartier-Bresson was some kind of liberated sage. But he's touching on it. He's trying to get to it. And similarly, the psychologist J.J. Gibson gives us this analysis of the ecology of perception. This is what he wrote, quote, To perceive the world is to co-perceive oneself. The optical information to specify the self accompanies the optical information to specify the environment. The one could not exist without the other. The supposedly separate realms of the subjective and the objective are actually only poles of attention. The dualism of observer and environment is unnecessary. The information for the perception of here is of the same kind as the information for the perception of there. And a continuous layout of surfaces extends from the one to the other. So there he's trying to, a little more, again, a little more strongly reject the duality. And Francisco Varela, a cognitive scientist, put it very simply and clearly. He said, world and perceiver specify each other. So there he's starting to take away the notion because if they specify each other, they're in total relationality. Dewey tried to get at this in his work too, which predates some of the stuff that I've seen uh, in some of the fancy academic literature because he rejected the notion of interaction. Uh, and we still have science based on interaction. And Dewey said no, because that, that proposes the two things interact. They can affect each other. Now, we've allowed that because in earlier science we didn't really uh, allow a deep effect to occur, you know, a deep mutuality. So with interaction, we start to allow that the interactants are affecting each other, but he wanted to say, no, we need to go even beyond that and see that there there isn't anything but this mutuality, this relationality. It's a little bit more radical. And I think the clearest expression maybe comes from the Dalai Lama. I really love his particular expression in his book, A Call for Revolution. This is a common touchstone. Maybe you've heard me mention this one before. This is what he says, quote, I have been inspired by the ideas of the French Revolution that were adopted as the motto of the French Republic, Liberté, Equalité, Fraternité. I adopted the same motto. As a Buddhist, 
The aim of my spiritual quest is to free myself of the fundamental ignorance that has led to the notion that there is a division between people and the natural world, which is at the root of all our suffering. So there, he makes it really clear. And what a thing for him to say. What, what would you think that the Dalai Lama is going to say, what's the aim of your spiritual quest? And what does he talk about? Ending the del- this delusory separation between human beings and nature. Separation of nature and culture, mind and nature, mind and body, all this duality. And he's completely in line with Nietzsche there, right? Because he says he's trying to free himself of the fundamental ignorance. That's what we're talking about. That's what Nietzsche's talking about. It's fundamental. And if you think you're more enlightened than the Dalai Lama, again, that's fine. That's great. Then please go out and teach others. But for the rest of us, we have to reckon with the fact that this is embodied ignorance. And we carry it into everything we do. And this is very concrete. You can see why we have to take it so seriously because he's talking about our suffering and the suffering of the world. The suffering of countless beings because now we won't let reality be realistic. Reality is conflicting with quote-unquote knowledge, human knowledge, human endarkenment. And if we're going to heal that, if we're going to heal the suffering that we carry in our own bodies. You've got plastic in your blood too. The air that you depend on is polluted. The water you depend on has pollutants in it. There are endocrine disruptors in our bodies and we're fighting wars still and people are starving still. We have a fixable situation, a healable and curable situation. And to heal this suffering, we've got to become artists of life. We co-create our world with countless sentient beings and with the the earth as a whole, with the earth herself. And the earth and all these beings, all our kin, all our relations, not just humans, but all our relations depend on us to activate our imagination in the most heartful and powerful ways possible, which is what our wisdom traditions teach us. How to activate our imagination and open our hearts for the liberation of all beings. Now, we haven't made those teachings central to the dominant culture. And as a consequence, our creation of the world has gone very very much awry. Instead of creating the world in the image of wisdom, love, and beauty, we let our vision get clouded by not just the embodied ignorance, of course, yes, but the endarkenment too. And we can call this misdirected creativity the active misknowing of ourselves, each other, our world, and the cosmos itself. This active misknowing means our suffering pulls 
the countless silken ties of love and thought that constitute our world. That's a line from Robert Frost, the countless silken ties of love and thought. And our active misknowing pulls on the countless silken ties of love and thought that constitute our world in such a way that other beings suffer because of our ignorance. And that leads to loss of friendships, breakdowns of partnerships, breakdown of cultural peace, intercultural peace. In other words, it leads to wars. It leads to degradation of ecologies. It leads to shocking injustice and inequality. And all the other things that we see. Pick your thing that you are upset about. And, that, and it's fine. It's okay that something is, is personally, that's where your heartbreak is. We have to find that. We have to let our heart hurt enough that we can ask the question, okay, well, we can't keep embodying this ignorance, so can we begin to inhabit reality? How do I inhabit reality? Our brokenheartedness is, is sometimes the very thing we need. We really have to be heartbroken enough. All this stuff goes together. All of it arises together. Wherever the suffering you experience in your life, and it might be in your body, it might be there as cancer, it might be there as fatigue, it might be there as migraines, it might be there as irritable bowel syndrome, whatever it is, goes together with all of this. We're talking about you, your life, your concrete experience, your loved ones. And we're talking about the fact that the dynamic interwovenness of the world arises as a well-put-togetherness. It really holds itself together. And that well-put-togetherness can manifest either as bondage or as liberation. Either as vitality or catastrophe. Our contemporary scientists, particularly our ecologists, have made it clear to us that we don't perceive, maybe not at all, certainly not clearly, we don't perceive the subtle and profound interwovenness and fluidity of all things. And so we trample this magical and mysterious relationality instead of embodying it. And there our scientists fall into full agreement with our wisdom traditions. That's what our wisdom traditions teach us too. And our wisdom traditions tell us that in order to embody reality, in order to shake off our embodied ignorance and transform our heart, mind, and body into an embodied reality, and embodied wisdom, love, and beauty. We need to receive our responsibility. In other words, we don't just get to embody reality in some kind of abstract sense or in accord with ordinary human purpose, because that's what a lot of people are doing. The self-help catastrophe is, I'm going to embody my own version of reality. 
but that wouldn't be reality. Now, there's a paradox here, too, because concretely speaking, we can't embody the mystery we already are. How do we embody what we already are? It's kind of reminiscent of the old notion of just be yourself. You know, when people say, well, just be yourself. And what is that supposed to mean? It seems like a bunch of confusion because most of the time, in fact, we are doing ourselves rather than being ourselves. So we'd have to stop all the doing in order to embody what we already are. And the relationality then contributes essentially to the paradox because it means we can't embody reality without taking responsibility in mutuality. Responsibility here might seem tricky because we're talking about something like a cosmic responsibility. Sometimes you might hear the term ontological responsibility that is like a responsibility to the very being of the cosmos, which seems like a wild and magical notion, but that it's something like that kind of responsibility, accepting a simultaneously ecological and cosmic or spiritual, philosophical kind of responsibility. Something ecological and cosmic at the same time. It's about having the sense of valuing something that transcends our ego because the world depends on us to do that. You see? So some commitment to something that is not up to us and that the whole world depends on us to be committed to. It seems we have to at least begin to have some sense that the world depends on us and that we depend on the world totally, totally and completely. We depend on countless sentient beings, not just other human beings, but we depend on fungi and bacteria and we depend on ants and earthworms and butterflies and bees. And we depend on a vast mystery, a sacred creative ordering, largely hidden or implicit. And it can never become an object of our current processes of knowledge. And there we have to put knowledge in quotes. May as well put object in quotes too, right? Nietzsche said, show me an object. And what we depend on is not an object. So that's going to take a real turnaround, isn't it? It seems we need this sense of our dependence on everything, and that's in mutuality, so then everything depending on us too. And in some kind of, again, paradoxical sense, there's no way for us to embody this. Because the problem with, with uh, approaching it that way is it would, it would emerge as if we were trying to isolate ourselves. Another way of putting this part of the paradox here is that who will embody 
reality. Who will embody reality? Where are you going to find that person? And here we have to recognize maybe again with Nietzsche that we have incorporated falsehood. All of us have incorporated falsehood. We embody ignorance, which means in a way we're kind of fake or deluded about what we are, even what we believe, what things annoy us, what things don't, what things we're going to have to give up in order for the world to become healed and rejuvenated in mutuality with us. There's a way in which somewhere, and it varies, you know, across different people, but there's a way in which we're all a bunch of fakers about it. And we've got a bunch of stories we tell, which are mostly ideology and spiritual materialism, and they go together with this fakery, this active misknowing of self and world. And then you add in this dominant culture's obsession with story and changing the story. And sometimes that has really lovely intentions. I'm a big fan of story, of course, you know. Sometimes though, it has rather over, obviously nefarious intentions, at least from a philosopher's standpoint. So we have this thing of what's your story and everybody's got a story and tell me your story and your story is how you're going to sell your product and And we don't want to confront how much our ideology and our embodied ignorance pervades all those stories. Because that's what Nietzsche is saying. It's like we, can, we sort of pretend that, well, let me put aside. I don't have embodied ignorance when I'm talking about this thing over here, when I'm talking about story, my story, my experience. And Nietzsche is saying, no, your embodied ignorance is still there. And so then it's also going to shape the stories you're telling. And I certainly acknowledge good stories heal, and we need art. We need art, of course. But the fact that good stories heal doesn't mean that our approach to the narratives of our lives and our culture have gotten free of the delusions that we embody as we're telling those stories, as part of telling the stories. And so it shouldn't surprise us to find a lot of fakery and confusion and basic ignorance in the dominant culture. And the whole self-help catastrophe just shouldn't surprise us. We basically live in a culture of ignorance, in, in, at least if you're in the dominant culture, and if you're affected by the dominant culture, this is just exacerbating problems, you know, because that ignorance infects us. But those of us li actually living in the dominant culture as, as sort of, you know, natives to it in a way, this is a culture of ignorance, a culture that encourages us to incorporate and embody its favored forms of delusion. It's not that we can't be sincere, of course. It's not impossible to be sincere. It's not that it never happens. It's just that we're shot through with active misknowing, like it sort of pervades us. We have embodied misknowing of ourselves, our world, each other, all beings. And again, we don't directly perceive the dynamic interwovenness that we are. And that's extraordinary. And it means both that we can't not embody it, and yet somehow we need to learn how to embody it skillfully, you see. 
I don't know if that's coming across, maybe, but so say reality is interwoven and fluid. So that's reality. Okay, well, we can't literally step out of reality, so that's what we are. But somehow or other, we live our lives not really aware of that, and we live our lives embodying something that differs from reality. So clearly, that is a terrible situation, right? And that's why we suffer. We immediately, we're suffering. We're carrying the suffering. And the suffering then starts to pervade the world and starts to hurt other beings. And then it comes back into our bodies as these toxins. And the whole thing is because we are this dynamic interwovenness, but we're not living like we are. So we already are reality. You can't not embody it. It's in you. It is you. And at the same time, in this weird way, we aren't embodying that reality. We're embodying our delusions. The consequence of that, since we can't just escape reality, it's not like if you embody delusion, then you just go into a whole different realm of the universe. No, you're still here. You're still in reality. The consequence is suffering. And this is all crazy, confusing, somewhat paradoxical, and the first thing is just to stop. If we already are reality, the great mystery, the divine, the sacred, the most important thing to do is just stop, stop everything that we're doing. The most important thing to do is not do anything. And spiritual practice means stopping. It begins with this pause, even like a stepping back out of the delusion as far as we can. And spiritual practice, or wisdom, philosophy, religion in the spiritual sense, all of that means learning how to move again, learning how to move gracefully. Now maybe we could just completely come to a stop. That's a theoretical possibility, I think, but in practice, it's kind of impossible to totally stop. Like, in other words, if I said, hey, right now, just stop, and you did, then you might become enlightened if you really did stop all of the crazy. All the faking, all the doing, we just, if we really stopped it, then, oh, there'd be nothing left but reality. But in practice, nobody can do that. That's why people spend hours and hours in meditation to finally just, just stop. My goodness, just stop. Stop all this embodiment of delusion. And, you know, our insanity just has tremendous momentum. And total enlightenment, perfect wisdom, perfect compassion and love, perfect grace, it's just not very easy to realize, it seems. We haven't had that many people really say, yes, I'm totally enlightened. It's a very small number of people, very small number of people who have really proclaimed a profound level of development at all. But we have seen a lot of people be transformed in really important and significant ways, in ways that matter to us and to other beings suffering in this world. We have teachings and practices that can begin helping us now. We can start the healing now. 
It's going to take time for us to more fully end this inhabiting and embodying of ignorance. And it's going to take time to get better and better at inhabiting and embodying wisdom, love, and beauty. It may take a a good long time to firmly establish a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty in which people grow up with an orientation toward reality rather than delusion. But we can get there. Inhabiting thus in practical terms, you, you know, it brings up habit and learning. In some sense, we need to have the new habit before we can think the new thoughts. We can't think our way into the new inhabiting. Because in an important sense, inhabiting comes first and thought comes afterwards. So we're not going to get there by, in, by means of what we think of as knowledge in the dominant culture. Again, we have to put that in quotes and say there's a lot of delusion in it, right? Somehow we have to start engaging in the teachings and the practices, start building different kinds of habits so that there is a place for the new thoughts and the new insights to appear. We have to make a, a nest for them. We have to let them inhabit us. Reality, the insights into reality have to have a place to inhabit in us, so to speak. And we are chock full of habits right now, so there's no space for reality to come in and start inhabiting us. You know, it would be as if you you wanted to move in with your partner because you love them, and when you get there, you have all your stuff, you know, and everything is full. There's not a drawer, there's no space in the closet, there is nothing, no space. In fact, you can barely walk through. Maybe, Maybe you discover they're a hoarder, and that's how we are. We're hoarders of ignorance. And we're also hoarders of of all kinds of self-help notions. That's part of the ignorance, in a way. We inhabit and are inhabited by fragmentation, delusion, and incoherence. We inhabit that, and that inhabits us. So we, we, we can't really delude ourselves into thinking, well, I'll just snap my fingers and start inhabiting truth and letting truth inhabit me. So it's a way of, of, of also just changing the question around. Instead of saying, how will I inhabit reality? How will I inhabit interwovenness? How will I inhabit truth? Well, the answer is, don't. Let truth inhabit you. And you say, well, okay, but I think I'm too full. <laughs> if you're really being honest, they say, well, I'm fully inhabited with a delusion. So how can anything inhabit me at all? How can the earth inhabit us? How can other sentient beings inhabit us? If we want to skillfully inhabit this earth, we must allow earth to inhabit us. And that's part of the deeper meaning of inhabiting interwovenness or inhabiting reality.
and if we were that person in that story, you know, about, you know, say we wanted a relationship, I say, man, I, you know, I'd really, I'm ready for a relationship. I feel it, you know, ready to start inhabiting love. And somebody might say, well, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. You work 16-hour days, and I've come to your house a few times, and there is no space in your life. Not only do you work 16-hour days, but your place is just full of your stuff, and your life is full of your stuff. There's no space in your schedule. And, you know, even if you met someone, if they were really being honest with us, they might say, I don't know if you'd be that good at it, really. I think after a little bit of limerence, you know, I think the whole thing is going to crash and burn because, to be honest, you're, you're kind of self-centered and you mainly have time for your interests. So how are you going to let somebody inhabit your mind and heart and dwelling? And so the person might say, could you at least start clearing out some of this clutter can you at least start making space in your schedule? Just space to do nothing. Don't even worry about going out, I'm going to make space today. Just space to do nothing so that there's space there. And then, sure, start doing some things that are a little bit out of your comfort zone that might be genuinely good for you, where you can learn and you can tap into your imaginative capacities and your creative capacities and so on. And you can't go look for this person you want because... Right now, you just have the habit of not wanting them in your life and not knowing how to relate well with somebody else, not knowing how to get beyond self-centeredness. That's how your life has become organized. So you need to start practicing care, compassion, patience, generosity, peace, meditation, the ability to have a concentrated mind, to pay attention to somebody in a non-judgmental way and make space for somebody to be able to live in your heart, in your life, so they can inhabit you in mutuality. And all beings are kind of asking for that level of care and love and reverence and respect from us. Reality needs us to make space for it, to make a home for it, all these sentient beings, human and non-human, all our relations who they give themselves every day to make our lives possible. You think how hard the bees are working for us and the trees and the waters and the beings of the waters and the beings in the earth. All the plants are just working, working, working. What are they producing for us? Food, medicine, air to breathe, water to drink. And they need us to make space for them. They have made this place for us. We need to make this place for them. We need to become a refuge for them, our human and non-human kin. The earth, the divine, the great mystery, sacredness itself. They need us to make space in our hearts, minds, and bodies so they can inhabit us and so we can inhabit them dwelling peacefully and joyfully 
as we co-create new possibilities and cultivate the whole of life onward in vitality and creativity. If you have questions, reflections, or stories to share about the practice and realization of interwovenness and fluidity, the nature of reality, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.